This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to be talking about the weaponization of history in far-right extremist narratives, looking at things like meme culture and symbols. And I'm very excited to have Ashton Kingdon and Christopher Fuller on the show today, all the way from the UK. So thank you for spending your evening with us. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And just for our listeners, Ashton is a PhD candidate at the University of Southampton and a doctoral fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. And Chris is an associate professor in modern U.S. history at the University of Southampton and author of See It, Shoot It, Secret History of the CIA's Lethal Drone Program, which we should probably have you on the show to also talk about that because we have a huge listenership of individuals that are very into drones. So we'll talk about that later, Chris. Of course, yeah, not a problem. (laughs) Yeah, but thank you so much for coming on the show, as I said before. And why don't we start off with you providing us a brief history of how far-right extremist narratives weaponize history and also events. You want to open with that, Ashton? Yeah, I I can open. So what I really look at is the weaponization of history uh, within imagery. So my PhD really only, only looks at images and memes. And it's the way that history is weaponized by far-right groups to tell a specific narrative so I'm not looking at the history itself it's more the alt history so the way that the alt-right specifically tell the history so I look at different components I mainly focus on medieval history the middle ages the confederacy clan imagery things like that so that's where my focus really lies and yeah I mean my broader interest in that really is the actual practice of how these authors uh, construct this history. So what what the actual idea of alt history is. So I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way these far right authors encourage their readers um, or often listeners to, to kind of draw these crooked lines, uh, the way they're able to join a, a series of completely unrelated dots into these ahistorical and, and kind of fragmented um, false narratives, uh, which as, as Ashton mentioned there, are these kind of alt histories as a, they're kind of labeled, these absolutely alternative realities. And, and they're based upon this kind of mix of paranoia and myth and nostalgia and uh, untruths, but, but also elements of popular representations of history that, that people would connect with. And they, they have a specific ideological purpose. You know, you, you put one of these alt histories together because you want to promote Islamophobia or a racist or a sexist or a, a homophobic um, perspective. But for me as a historian, what's most interesting about them is the way that they are completely constructed. You know, these are so-called histories where the authors are completely free to construct something utterly false. And 
as somebody whose discipline relies upon evidence and the construction of material and the analysis and, and you know, careful construction um, of that evidence, it, it's fascinating to see something claiming to be history that exists in, in such a kind of made up territory. I think what's so interesting about this topic is specifically right now, especially me being in the United States, is we're seeing a lot of some of these narratives uh, seeping into not only far-right, alt-right platforms and websites and productions of media, but also sometimes in, in like everyday media, like things are blurring this idea of real accounts of things and also fictitious accounts. So my question is that, is this something that we're seeing as a new occurrence because of the online world? Or have we seen this in the past as well? Is it an internet age creation? Or has this been something that's taken years, if not decades, to stew and also have a strong basis in a culture? And so some of the things that I've looked at in my research is the evolution of symbols. And a lot of this is pre-internet age. So, for example, if you look at groups like the KKK, they're one of the main points of my thesis. The symbols that they have and the origin stories of them really have nothing to do with the KKK or even race or racism. So some of the examples I really look at is the outfits of the clan. So how they have evolved from the postbellum clan into the clan of the 1920s. You know, they're using these symbols that in the Middle Ages would be used to denote shame. There's an example of Spanish Catholics using the same clothing and iconography during Holy Week. So like Palm Sunday, and they use them to repent for their sins. The mask is to hide their identity and the pointed heads are meant to reach them closer to heaven, which is super interesting with the clan, particularly because they're so against Catholicism. If you look at like the Burning Cross, which was popularized in the 1915 um, D.W. Griffith film, The, Burn, uh, the uh, Birth of a Nation, that was really where that came from. And it was popularized through that. But 400 years before, you saw this in Scotland with the clans of Scotland, it was used in the Jacobite uprisings in 1745, the Canadian War of 1812. So there's all of these historical elements within the symbolisms that a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of. If you look at like the symbols on the clan outfits as well, like they use the Celtic cross quite a lot. And that actually stands for something completely unrelated to hate. Um, like in the Bronze Age, it was a common symbol for a god or the sun or a wheel. In astronomy, it's used to represent Earth. And it was really manipulated by the 1920s, so the second era clan that was more political. And that's when you get the blood drop cross as well. So representing the blood shed to protect the right race. And another thing that I've looked at quite a lot is the evolution of caricatures from their historical components during the civil war the reconstruction era through Jim Crow and how they're repackaged now to appeal to a millennial generation so a lot of people aren't actually aware of the historical symbolism behind these caricatures that they're using and then this links through with 
the Confederacy, you know, the statues, the symbols of the Confederacy, the lost cause narrative. So a lot of this was actually before the internet. So the problem isn't necessarily because of the technology. It's been there all the time, but I think technology just accelerates it. Yeah, I I'd absolutely agree with that. And and the, the same is true just for the broad discipline of, of history. Um, I mean, popular history and alternative interpretations have always existed in historical accounts. Um, you know, history isn't just an academic pursuit. It Everybody has a stake in it. Everybody has a perspective and they see the world around them through uh, a historical lens. It might be something that they learned from high school. It might be from their own interpretations. It might be from, from popular culture. Um, but even in professional history, it, it's always seen as unfinished and, and something that needs to be revised and is, is open to new interpretations. So this idea that history can be misused, it can be revised, you could deliberately shape alternatives, that has nothing to do with technology. Um, that has been around since people have been recording uh, events. But actually, I think it's popular appeal um, is one of the reasons that in an internet age, we, we see more of this because it's a gateway into discussing topics and raising um, ideas and pushing ideologies with people in ways that you wouldn't otherwise be able to uh, converse with them and access them. People that might not be in the mood for a political discussion, but are happy to hear about history in a, in a kind of popular sense. So whether that's combined with um, identity building or whether that's combined with, with pushing a particular ideology, the far right groups that have decided to use history in the kind of weaponized way they have, one of the reasons for that is because online um, historical narratives are still a popular thing. And if you can construct a forum or you can construct um, a a medium where people are essentially engaging with history as far as they see it, not ideology, then that's quite a um, stealthy way of actually pushing uh, ideas in front of people that wouldn't necessarily consume them um, from other forums. So I think that's where the technology side of it comes in. Discussing history online is quite common and popular. Um, and it's a it's a good way of introducing more extreme ideas under the um, under disguised really as being historical discourse when actually you're pushing something much more ideological. So what types of platforms do we see these types of narratives being distributed on? And then also off of that, we have seen, especially recently, different tech companies and social media platforms starting to become much more aggressive with taking down narratives and coded speech and so forth. So does using the guise of history help also evade such takedowns of content? So I've been on pretty much every platform I can think of. I'm generally shocked now if there's one that I haven't been on. You do see it everywhere. There's certain platforms where you see it more on. I would say with the popular history, you see it more on mainstream platforms. Certainly one thing that I've looked at heavily is Confederate Instagram. 
So the way in which these communities can commune on these surface web, you know, mainstream platforms around something that is racist masked behind these ideas of like Southern heritage and values and state rights. I've seen it a lot on platforms like Gab. So the right wing populist platforms, they will have these really coded historical narratives mixed in with say Pepe the Frog. Pepe's been everywhere. He's every historical character you can imagine. He's been in every period. You see it on Facebook, on Twitter. You don't really see, as Chris was saying, the popular history on the more hidden away niche platforms. What you see on them is a big link with, say, philosophers or scholars from the past, fascist scholars. Julia Avola is one of the popular ones. You know, there's a lot of um, national socialist books people will have to read. And that's when they use history as a way to back up the points that they're trying to make. And there's a lot of link to this being a historian is somehow justifying what you're reading because you're reading it through the perception of history. But I don't think that one of the things that I'm super interested in is it's much more difficult to dismiss a historical narrative as fake news as it would be to dismiss something from QAnon. So I think if you're looking at the way that big tech platforms can say utilize AI or machine learning to try and take things down. I think a lot of historical memes, caricatures, things like that will slip through the net because people aren't necessarily aware of the way that history is weaponized. And it's super difficult to differentiate between who's having a historical discussion and who's using the history as a way of propelling an extreme ideology. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, I find this really i'd certainly look at um a lot less in terms of the um more hidden sides of the internet that's very much ashton's research but i mean i'm pretty staggered by how much of this is in plain sight um and exactly as you you mentioned chelsea this idea of being very careful um to wrap things up to look like legitimate either academic discussions or things that are coming from um, publishing houses um, you know if you if you think back to the 19 the 1980s and the 1990s you kind of started to have the war of ideas with the, the rather dramatic emergence of think tanks and then academics engaging more heavily in policy debates a kind of revolving doors between academia think tanks and and government um, I'm thinking things in the 1980s like the the um, heritage and then with the Reagan administration and then um, moving on with the Progressive Policy Institute with Clinton and, and that those kind of close relationships. Well, a lot of that has been mimicked by the far right, um, that you have institutions like the National Policy Institute headed by Richard Spencer, which masquerades as a think tank. You have um, individuals within academia who wrap their work up to look like it's historical analysis when when actually what they're doing is very much promoting um, fascist and far-right ideas then you have these kind of publishing houses and what they do collectively is they create a sense of legitimate historical discussion and then they publish these short accessible um 
aesthetically pleasing books that have a proper budget behind them. So here we're looking at a real difference between the far-right manifesto, right, the extremist manifesto that we we might all be used to and more aware of, um, that, you know, is largely only accessible online, perhaps. Um, and then the, the marketizing and the polishing up of this content. So it looks more like legitimate historical content. And as far as the internet comes in here, the reason that's so interesting is it allows it to exist absolutely on mainstream platforms. So these books will be published and are very easy to find on Amazon. And they rely upon and abuse in some ways um, the algorithms of those platforms. So once you search for one of these authors on Amazon, the way the recommender algorithm works very quickly underneath that, you will see uh, similar books. But it's, it's really noticeable how quickly you will go from, say, um, one book uh, about the um, EU and the way that the project of the EU is designed to destroy white European culture and heritage, right? And it will claim to be a history of the European Union. But from there, customers who viewed those books on Amazon, you will very quickly see anti-Semitic texts. You will see books that are uh, focused upon apocalyptic ideas or that are about traditionalism, which as um, Ashton mentioned there, often is coded as a return to a kind of segregated and separate uh, society. Um, and then from the Amazon marketplace, of course, people that read these books and um, are, are interested in them will then often write, speak on YouTube about them. Um, and what they then do is they're, they're essentially translating these books into more simplified, uh, accessible versions for much broader audiences. And so then you're able to attract groups that might be quite traditional conservatives, but because many of these ideas sound quite familiar, um, they start listening and then the book recommendations will come in. And because those books aren't on some shady area of the dark web, but there they are available right next to Anne Coulter's book um, in the Amazon marketplace there, then it feels much more legitimate to buy that book. And through this process, you've actually had very extreme um, far right and anti-Semitic and Islamophobic and homophobic um, ideas openly for sale. Um, when these tech platforms seem to be um, either oblivious to it or not really conscious of what they can do to, to combat it. And I think what you've just said really is very telling, especially in today's day and age. Um, I've actually know individuals that are very conservative Republican and Republican, excuse me. And as you mentioned, they, they end up reading something and then they go down this rabbit hole because they get recommended other books or start listening to podcasts and, and the views just get more extreme and, and it snowballs. So it's very much like you said, there's this whole process that takes place 
And it's unfortunately very simple to be sucked down this tunnel that takes you into a completely different way of looking at things and history and people and societies. So why don't we talk about, I know that you have a specific study that you're doing and it sounds very fascinating. So I'd love to actually spend some time discussing that as well. So I'll hand over the floor to one of you to introduce this study and tell us about it. Okay, so this is actually a chapter of my thesis. So what it does is it takes the Christchurch weapon, so it's the four guns, the six magazines, and it decodes all of the symbols, all of the names, the dates, the symbols, into a historical narrative. So it's the far right version so we're not looking at the actual history we're looking at the alt history the alt right far right version of the clash of civilizations so it traces it from the death of muhammad into six from 632 to the present day so it tells a historical story of how the far right has clashed in various periods of time with muslims and islam so it tells the history through the symbols And then it also provides memes specifically from right-wing populist forums to talk about how the alt-right are internalizing these historical narratives to be able to recruit and attract people to their ideas. That's like the overarching aim of the chapter. And why don't you also explain for our listeners that might not know about sort of the details of the Christ church attack and the actual weapons and these symbols and memes that are on the weapons. So yeah, they, Chris knows that I'm obsessed with symbols. That's one of my things. I only look at imagery. I'm absolutely obsessed with it. So when the Christ church attack happened in New Zealand in 2019 now, um, there was all of these images over the internet about this gun. And I emailed Chris straight away and I was like, have you seen this weapon? And he was like, oh, I already knew you'd be all over this. And he'd already like screen grabbed the Twitter account images of the weapons. So I always knew that I wanted to do something to do with that specific imagery because it tells such a unique narrative of the way that these far-right actors cherry-pick specific moments in history. And I'm not necessarily convinced they understand the history of it at all. And they use it to create this really superior narrative of the way that the West has confronted Islam throughout the ages. So there's the history behind it. As I said, it's much easier to dismiss these historical narratives as being fake news or something extreme. And they will link it with alt-right iconography to make it appeal to specific audiences. So it was really about using this information to create this tale, but it was about, rather than representing it chronologically, I coded it into a series of roles that were likely to be attracted to potential extremists. And that's how the framework of the chapter ended up being. And I think what's so interesting is how much these weapons resonated with individuals that 
associated in one way or another with the extreme far right. Even my own research at looking at individuals that went to become foreign fighters in the Ukrainian conflict, there were people that actually posted images of these weapons on their social media accounts. So why don't we talk about that a bit and and why this resonates so much with individuals that identify with this type of ideology? I think it depends on what they're looking at and at what symbols. So what you were saying, Chelsea, I've seen a lot. So you see a lot of memes that have replicated the Christchurch gun. So you'll see loads of far-right memes that are different versions of, it would be a different Pepe, or it'll be someone else holding the gun, or it would be the gun. And then you see it with ISIS. ISIS then released a image of the Christchurch gun, a similar version where they'd written similar things as a reaction and I had it translated and it was very much a counter-attack to that so I think the roles are really important in looking at how people might be attracted to them so I had five roles and the ultimate argument was that having the gun allowed you to play all the roles at the same time so it was all about how these people see themselves how they see the wider community how these roles are drawing them in and how ultimately things like the technology, the symbolism of the gun, it wasn't just about the symbols. It was about where they were, where they were positioned on the gun, the main dates and names and symbols that he wanted out there were on the main guns that he used in the attacks, the magazine, same thing. The main symbols were on the drum magazine. The less significant symbols in his narrative, not the historical narrative, the narrative that the shooter created were on the magazines because he knew that they would be viewed less and there would be less attention placed onto them. When you actually start looking into the history and how these far-right actors use it, most of what the Christchurch shooter had in his um, symbols was from Anders Breivik. So he took the same narrative that Anders Breivik wrote in 1,500 pages and he put them on a gun and he knew that it would be Googleable. He knew that the gun was going to get widespread attention because of the way that he'd done it. And it was so much easier for somebody to Google the Battle of Tours or Charles Martel or the Crusades or something to do with the Templars and they would Google it and see something like the West prevents Muslim expansion. And that would be more impactful than somebody reading a 1,500-page manifesto. So that was where the interest in the symbolism really came from, how it was resonating with so many people. And then the stuff to do with how it was being represented in memes was then how it travels. So you've got the gun as the primary source, and you've got all of these historical dates that people probably wouldn't have known about, but then you've got these hundreds and hundreds of images coming up all over Gab and VK and Facebook, Twitter to do with these historical narratives that have come straight from this source. So it was such a powerful way of being able to reach so many people on mainstream platforms. And it's it's a history made for, as, as Ashton says here, you know, things that can be punched into Google this this is for your history scholar who is essentially just going to interrogate Wikipedia for their for their details. Um, you know that 
a selection of battles and events that create a sense of a thousand year struggle between Islam and Christendom um, and, you know, a clear clash of civilizations. And of course, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, these old histories are about cherry picking unconnected dots and then stringing them together into some sort of narrative. And that's exactly what happened here. But this isn't a narrative for people that are then going to go and study this as part of a history degree. This is for people that are going to punch these things into search engines. And then that is going to form the narrative for them. These, these four or five key points in history that create a sense of continuous conflict. When, of course, the historical reality is um, you're looking at, for the vast majority of that time, cohabitation, cooperation, um, synergy and mixing of peoples. But if you if you build it down to these cherry pick points, it's it's a kind of history made for a search engine um, time, a search engine way of learning. Would you say that in a sense, especially with the Christ Church attack and the weapons, that this cherry picking of points in history or even topics, as well as almost creating their own history, is a form of propaganda? Or is it something that truly resonates with either the attackers or the greater community? I think the history itself is a form of propaganda. Like, Chris and I were talking yesterday about the identitarian movement and the way that they will use specific epochs to represent a utopian future. So they use this like idealized version of the past, which is false, to present this future society where everything's going to be idyllic. And they'll use specific philosophical theories and less extreme fascist so Giulio Vola is probably their favorite so it, he's a fascist but he's not one of those they'll say he well he didn't go that far and they'll use people like Hegel so they'll say well Hegel was in his ideas was thinking right so nationalism's bad but what is it behind nationalism that was attractive so it was patriotism it was about having somewhere to belong and they'll quite often construct these histories as a form of propaganda to say, well, so for example, Giulio Vola looks back to the Roman Empire as the way things should be. They look back to the Vikings. They look back to the Crusades. Basically, white supremacy in different epochs, they will use a fake version of it that they have twisted to represent this utopian future where everything will be fine. They'll use things like the divine right of kings and old school philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and talk about things like the state of nature to try and make their ideas stick more. And I think some of the some of the followers or, or some of those that are sucked in by these narratives do believe them um, or aspects of them. So, I, I mean, I, I would absolutely agree with Ashton there that this is this is predominantly a, a you know, a propaganda vehicle. But in the same way, if we take a statement like, um, I don't know, let's take a, a common one that everyone will know, make America great again. Um, you know, that that was a propaganda statement. It was it was a, a campaign slogan. But 
there were clearly plenty of people that did have a sense that in some way America is no longer great for them and that they would like to get it back to what it was. Now, that doesn't mean that they know what that actually was, right? Well, what exactly the great period was, but they probably have some sense that there was a period when um, our father or their grandfather probably worked in um, a factory in the city that obviously is no longer there anymore. It's been offshored, had a good income. Um, there was a lot less, it would appear that there was a lot less in the way of confusion around certain things for them. L life seemed a lot simpler. So a phrase like that, um, you can use a phrase like that and you can basically get people to believe it because they will believe that the past was better if they feel that their present is not good it must have been better in the past and the same happens with the far right they very much hold to this view that western civilization is in decline um so they do use it as propaganda but plenty of followers do hold in this very solidly to this idea that history is cyclical that they are living through this period of um, the, the decline of Western civilization by which they, um, they're talking about a very constructed kind of Western civilization. So the sorts of things they're against are, um, you know, liberal multiculturalism, um, any sort of egalitarian projects, anything that destabilizes very traditional senses of race and gender or um, sexual hierarchies, all of these things are in some way degenerate uh, and are undermining this um, fantasy view of what Western civilization might have been. And what they would like to do is get back to that, um, which is where we see uh, accelerationism come in. You know, those that believe you can actually hasten this demise because it's cyclical. If you bring about the demise and the, the collapse of Western civilization, then uh, it will re-emerge. And again, that, that's a very alternative perspective on history. Most professional historians would not for one moment accept that history is cyclical. Um, it's, it's far too complex for that to be the case. But there are definitely uh, many within the far-right movement that, that accept and believe um, that idea. I think what you've just said goes back to some past shows that we've done with guests about concepts of dystopia and utopia. And I think what constantly comes into my mind with looking at extremist groups, as well as jihadist extremist groups and, and individuals that are involved in the jihadist sphere, is that one individual's utopia is another individual's dystopia. So what someone might be looking to attain through bringing down the system might be their utopia, but yet for other people that are living in the present that are happy with it, it would be their dystopia. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and in the same way, Ashton mentioned the echo between the far right propaganda on the um, weapons and then ISIS creating something similar um, these two play off each other enormously. Um, you know, in the same way that 
uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda before that sought to create religious legitimacy and um, a scholarly justification for their actions um, and a legitimacy to their, their, their goals, um, the far right is doing exactly the same. But these two are kind of acting um, as uh, echoes to one another. So th that utopia, yes, absolutely. The establishment of a caliphate is a utopia for one group and an end goal. And for the far right is a further sign of the degeneration of Western society, because what it triggers is this is going to allow you to reconquest, uh, to reconquer these territories, which is another one of the historical narratives they, they like. You know, the, the examples that um, Ashton was mentioning of battles on the uh, gun, much of this is about reconquest um, and taking land back. And so when you have the rise of a group and the establishment of a, this kind of self-declared caliphate, that plays into these alternative histories really, really well, because this shows that Western society is clearly failing. It, it's being taken over. Um, this is why they point towards migration and refugees as well. Um, more diverse populations. They, all of this they will take as a sign of some sort of Islamic conquest that their historical narrative tells them that that will trigger a reconquest. Um, so they're able to draw upon these historical figures who themselves were um, involved in this. And this is part of what uh, Ashton's research went on to, to point out with these identities that some of these people, that, th these identities you can hold are soldiers of Christ and people that are kind of conquering this territory and drawing upon those. And I mean, Ashton can um, say much more about that than me, but it, it strikes me that um, they, without one, it, one fuels the other very much. Ashton, I'll hand it over to you to maybe elaborate more on these roles that Chris was alluding to and that your research actually discusses. Okay, yeah. So I use, to get the roles, the whole idea was behind having a theoretical framework. So I use Evan Goffman because I'm a sociologist at heart and I love him. He's one of my favourite theorists. So Goffman's dramaturgical account of human interaction so he argues individuals gain their sense of self through their interactions with others. So he bases it on like William Shakespeare's All the World's a Stage. So he argues that exchanges are these theatrical metaphors. So individuals construct their roles and will perform them to their audience based upon the values and beliefs they learn from their interactions with social institutions, their prior interactions with others. So he really believed that within social life, we play a range of different roles determined by the different situations we take ourselves to be in, how we feel we should be coming across in these situations. So he created this idea that we don't always present a constant or centered identity, but we engage in this process of impression management. And this will differ based on particular contexts and audiences. So 
he has these concepts of the front and backstage self. So in situations where we don't know other people as well, we're not familiar with them on an intimate level, we have our front stage selves. So the sort of person that you might be if you're talking to your boss or if you're talking to someone formal. And then when you're with your friends, your family, you show your backstage self. So the reserve component of your identity, you only present it to those with whom you are familiar. And you can see this manifesting when you meet people and then become more familiar with them you let more of your personality out so Goffman really argued that behind these theatrical masks you don't really have a true self so he says things like there's no identifiable performer behind the roles the roles are the performer so before I did the far right I did a lot of research into ISIS so I was obsessed with um Charlie Winter's um stuff into Islamic State. I was doing my research at a similar time. It was 2016-17. So I really used this initially then. So I spent about eight months in ISIS networks looking at propaganda, and it was all about breaking this down to see how this theory fit with it. So it was all about ISIS utilising impression management within their propaganda. So they provide these illusions of a utopian society in which they have these roles that people can perform. So they'll also have these backstage components where they'll target disillusioned, disenfranchised youths. Something's going wrong with their current role in society or they don't conform with the Western society that they're living in. So the propaganda from ISIS really targeted those with an existing grievance, looking at how people had something lacking in their identity to give this illusion that the caliphate will have a role for them as a social actor. So it was influencing the direction of their performance in their lives. So where the internet comes in with this is the more socially connected we are, the more we tend to manage those components of our personality we think society would see as favourable. So ISIS were really expert at homing in on this and exploiting these existing grievances and manipulating them, offering these different opportunities. So it was all about the narratives that they use. So how their propaganda conveyed that when you come to the caliphate, you will have a role as a fighter, a husband, a friend. It was all about the camaraderie. The, like the whole research was called the seductions of the caliphate, why people wanted to go there. So I used the same idea with this weapon. So it was all about people that join far-right groups, what's going on with their social roles, why they might have come unstuck, in their usual day-to-day lives and what it was about these symbols, dates, the history, the weaponization of it that was attracting them. So I essentially coded it into five roles that were the ultimate soldier of Christ, the military hero, the freedom fighter, the knight in shining armor and the martyr. So they were the five components or roles that I identified from all of this history and all of these symbols. And as I said previously, the gun and this narrative allowed you to be all the roles simultaneously. So if you had something going on in your life that was restricting your roles, you're much more likely to be drawn into these roles. And it was the history behind it that really propelled them and made them stick. And considering the roles that you've just mentioned, Mm-hmm. I mean, all of them pretty much glorify the individual because you're 
a soldier of Christ, a military hero, a freedom fighter, a knight in shining armor. And then the martyr one, I mean, could be debatable depending on your personal <laughs> feelings, but still they, they glorify an individual and that specific role. So let's discuss that a bit because anyone that's searching for meaning and purpose in life could see these roles and think, well, that could be me. Yeah, so the first one, which is probably the one with the most outright content as well. So as I looked for memes that coincided with these narratives, this was the one that really stuck out. So the ultimate soldier of Christ. And it it was all about going back to the Middle Ages when these ideas of knights and, you know, damsels in distress and chivalry were a key part of it. And it was all about Christendom as this unstoppable force of nature that could prevent everything, including Islam. So it was all about the way that they will use, as Chris said earlier, it's all about popular history. It's not the actual history, it's what they see as popular. So very much in the symbolism on the gun, you know, it starts in 718 with the Kingdom of Astorius and how... Um, is a guy called Pel- Pelagius prevented the Umayyad Muslim expansion. So it starts there. And it's all about this fairy tale narrative. I mean, the whole chapter is written like a story. It starts with a tale as old as time. It's all about the story behind the far right. So it starts there. It goes through the Battle of Tours in 732. So when you have the people like Charles Martel, Then it goes through the Crusades. Now, the important thing is they don't mention the Crusades specifically. And as Chris pointed out when we were having meetings about this, if they were going to mention the Crusades, it would be too much information for them to be exposed to. They would have had to look into it more. So they don't mention the Crusades specifically, but they'll mention specific people that didn't lead the Crusades, but were involved in it. So, for example, they mention the Battle of Antioch and Bohemian the first, or they and they'll mention Gaston of Bern. So he was the first crusader to enter Jerusalem after the walls had been breached. And the point was that they didn't place any attention really to that battle when they actually reconquered Jerusalem. It was all about specific people. A lot of the outright symbolism that came within it was all about the Templars, because they know that people will look to them as being something quite seductive. It's all about Richard the Lionheart, all of these narratives about being a hero. And it was all about the Ottoman Empire, the different stages of that in which Christendom came up on top. And again, they would use specific people within these battles of the Siege of Vienna to explain how they prevented um, Vienna being taken and the ha- saving the Habsburgs. It was all about the narrative of being these strong warriors. You go into the military hero, and again, it's all about these people that have these roles. So it's coded into military and then um, the sort of naval commanders of the cross. So naval battles as well. It's all about much larger forces being defeated by the smaller forces, the weaker forces. So, and and then they bring religion into this. So it was God's, it was something to do with 
Christ that helped them defeat them in these battles. And they'll mention places like the Kingdom of Georgia. It's all about using these specific, mainly Balkan countries as their case studies of people within them that stood up to this expanding enemy. And Chris makes a really good distinction between the military strength during the war on terror and how it played out then. I don't know if you want to talk about that, Chris. What in the in the sense that well I, I mean it's interesting that the war the war on terror played out some of these in similar ways in that the film when the film 300 came out um imagery of spartans started to become very very popular um popular in mainstream because there was a sense of these 300 um uh, warriors that were in the in the film at least and in popular perceptions that were projected as kind of defenders of Greece, which therefore stood for uh, democracy. And, you know, the, the, the first, there was a, a version of the, the Battle of Thermopylae um, that came out during the Cold War. And what was interesting there was that the, because it was an American produced film, the Spartans were presented as kind of defending democracy um, and the others from the East, the Persians, um, were this kind of communist horde. Um, that in itself was a historical, because of course the Spartans lived under a system which was much closer to uh, a communist system um, and were directly hostile with the Athenians, which we would commonly um, consider to be the, the kind of real home of democracy, radical democracy at least. So 300 had become popular in that sense, in that... Um, there, there was this idea of Western civilization that Greece represents this original point of Western civilization, um, defending this minority, stopping the incursions of these masses from the east. And uh, in the in the plot, of course, uh, it's the Persian Empire, but uh, it was just more representative of um, in people's minds of Islam, and that imagery has actually been picked up and popularized by the uh, far right. Um, so a lot of the imagery of Spartan shields and iconography and helmets ended up showing up at the Unite the Right um, rally in Charlottesville. And again, this is, this is this point about how all of these are alt histories and none of it is about actually dipping into any of the historical reality of this, because it doesn't take much exploration into what the city-state of Sparta was actually like to see there is a problem if your movement wants to present themselves as Spartan hoplites, but also wants to be homophobic, uh, because Spartan soldiers lived with one another in um, barracks, you know, that on, on the wedding night when they had to go sleep with their wives, the wives had to have their heads shaved uh, heads shaved so that um, and, and the men would only visit in the dark so that they would feel like the young boys that the Spartan soldiers were actually used to having physical relations with right like this is the reality of Sparta but that doesn't matter in an alt history in an alt history Spartans are soldiers that were involved as a minority 
that martyred themselves, sacrificed themselves against this Eastern horde to protect something that in this simplified version of history is the root of Western civilization. When, when Western civilization represented um, masculinity and muscular men with subservient women, um, I mean, of course, again, Spartan women were far from subservient, but at least that's, that's the perception that they have here. Um, before something like the um, Enlightenment came along and started messing with this idea of a pure Western civilization, before multiculturalism um, and projects that saw um, global communities, you know, before globalization and neoliberalism destroyed what, in their mind, um, Western civilization is. So you can have these kind of interesting connections back to things that became popular and common during the war on terror uh, because they were seen as kind of struggles against Islam and the way that the far right then adopted those because actually they'd entered into a popular consciousness, right? The idea of Spartan soldiers resisting um, invaders is in the, the popular um, consciousness, and the actual history of it is irrelevant to, to those constructing those narratives. And to those stood there in Charlottesville with a shield with a Spartan emblem on it or wearing a, a, a crested bronze helmet um, and marching as if they're in a phalanx, thinking that they themselves are some sort of representatives of, of Greek soldiers that were, by and large, um, openly homosexual. You know, that, that, that blurring just doesn't matter to these groups. I think what's interesting is that it's almost, as you said, this cherry picking of history or it is, but also combining what is taking place in broader popular culture. So for instance, the movies and, and Hollywood. And when we think of this and also how these narratives and these ideas are promoted, how can we potentially counter them or can we in the sense of it's so fictitious, but yet believable to individuals that just don't have the time to really do their fact checking. I think what you just said is so important. Like the core part of my research for my thesis is all about how popular culture shapes extremist narratives. So quite a lot of the time you'll see extremist organizations borrow from popular culture. And like Chris was just saying about um, Sparta, the identitarians use the Sparta logo, but they never use the exact logo. It's always some sort of manipulated image because they know that people will probably have seen 300. And when they see that shield, they'll think of Gerard Butler and they'll think of the role that he played. And you see it with the Templars. You see it with Game of Thrones, with the Middle Ages, that kind of, you know, knights in shining armor narratives that they have. These glamorized middle ages narratives you see it in the films you see it in video games with the vikings you see it in god of war you know a lot of the images in the um role that i had of the knight in shining armor was all about um someone called luca Trini who carried out attack in italy and they had transformed him into the god of war and it was all about masculinity and the different masculine roles that you can play 
Um, and it was all about manipulating the imagery to fit in with popular culture because people will know they all resonate. You see this with ISIS, with the Grand Theft Auto, them using that, and you see it with uh, Wolfenstein Toon, with the clan iconography, you see it in Red Dead Redemption. So I think that it's important to educate people about the way that history is weaponized so that people don't get drawn into it as this seductive cherry-picked past and these idealized pasts that point to these utopian futures where everyone's going to live like that there's no real portrayal and I think as history becomes more popularized especially through shows and things like Vikings I think that's when extremists can really use it to their advantage Yes, and and there's there's a responsibility on historians to to a degree, but I mean, as as everything that that Ashton's pointed out there, and, and as your your question kind of mentioned, th- these things are popular, and it it is very difficult to strike a balance between um, rigorous academic scholarship and the the absolute complexity of the past and popular culture um i mean what i would say is one of the best ways i think history can can kind of fight back is is one of the things that's going on it's certainly happening in the uk i know it's also uh, very much case in in us academia and that is things like the the decolonizing and the diversifying of curriculums um and one of the reasons it it works both ways right in some ways um, by by decolonizing a curriculum and by introducing more voices, you you are going to create more circumstances where people are frustrated with history. Right? There there are people in the UK that would just they like their Churchill as a nice simple <laughs> war hero. Right? He gave some speeches and. <laughs> Ultimately, he saved everybody. Uh, we'll fight them on the beaches. Uh, we'll fight them in the streets. And there we go. And that's the Churchill they want. And they don't want to be um, made aware of the Churchill that was a drunkard or that was utterly incompetent or that was um, a racist. That, that's very unpopular. And in in raising those things, in, in flagging those up to people, it creates a frustration. But... It also opens history up and democratizes it to other people. That history isn't just something of a, a certain privileged group. So for everybody that you frustrate and annoy with this um, revising of Churchill's reputation and image, or perhaps say the role of the empire um, or the United States role in, in world affairs, for as much as you revise that and ask these hard critical questions, that's going to annoy certain groups. It is also going to open up the discipline of history. It's going to mean that suddenly um, ideas of privilege and guilt mean that this discipline can speak and appeal to a broader group. So in exactly the same way that far-right groups hate um, ideas of multiculturalism and diversity and the mixing of peoples, um, this is really the best way that history can fight against these simplistic narratives is actually to continue to decolonize and diversify and open up our understanding. And yes, you will annoy and lose certain people, um, but you will also 
open up and bring in many more. And that sort of educating and engagement and critical discussion in the past will ultimately ensure that history remains very fresh and that you have engaging, entertaining, enjoyable, accessible narratives that serve to highlight the inaccuracies and the ridiculousness of the alt histories that are being created. Something that Ashton mentioned way at the starting of the talk, which I think also plays into this discussion to an extent, is um, what we've been seeing here in the US with the various movements we've had and the protests and so forth, and especially the idea of taking down statues that represent Confederate soldiers or figures on the Confederacy side of the Civil War here in the US. And I know there's been a huge debate about whether to take down these statues, some saying it glorifies these individuals and the ideas that they had, while others say it's masking history. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that because it is a very big topic and it's it's very complicated too because it's entwined with so much of our culture here and our past and representations of a specific type of history like we've been talking about in this discussion. Yeah, so I talk about the statues in my chapter on the Confederacy and the Klan. So the way I look at it is how they occupy public space and how they are representing history. And it's basically about people having a warped sense of what racism is. So quite a lot of the time you'll see people that will say things like, America's racist, and they'll use the South as an example. They've got the Confederate flag, they're racist. And it's usually what I've found is that that Confederate flag and the statues are now the emblem of racism in the US, right? So people are really looking at this as the demon. And the reason that I think this is, is because of its link with terrorism after Dylan Roof. So I think that having that type of frozen racism, that staple of racism, as now being linked to terrorism, made a lot of people take them down. Now, it's so interesting what you just said, because I was having a conversation with two of my colleagues from CAR that live in the US, in the South, and one of them was saying that she was at university undergrad only a few years ago in North Carolina, and they still teach the Confederacy as being about states' rights. So she was saying, when you are asked in your exam what the Confederacy was about, you have to say it's about these other issues. It wasn't to do with slavery. So I think that's really interesting. But also, I think that the issues around the statues, if you're in the US, you will have a much better understanding of how difficult it is and the implications around taking them down for the wider community so one of my friends is at the um chapel hill north carolina university and we were having a conversation about the statues i was telling her i was doing a piece on it and she was saying that you can only take one down within a certain amount of years so i think it was like something like every six years you can take one down and then there's a big protest about it i think it's really 
interesting the way that we view racism through these statues as being the epitome of it um so like someone that I was having a conversation with this someone called Aaron Winter who does a lot of work on racism um particularly in the US and he was saying that about people living in um Georgia at Stone Mountain and people will go about their days and then not really notice the mountain and the symbolism within it and then all of a sudden there's a clan rally and then it becomes about white supremacy again so I think the issue of statues is really really interesting particularly now as they're used so much within memes so all of the research I've gathered over the past month I've literally been on confederate Instagram it's been a journey that I never thought I'd undertake the memes and the rhetoric around the statues so they'll use Egypt when are we going to take down these symbols of slavery because they were built by slaves so they'll use things like the pyramids as an example or they'll use the social justice warrior angle and they'll have memes that say you know show me on the doll where the confederate statue hurt you So in a way, it's really fueling that sort of right wing populist rhetoric about these illiberal forms of racism. Um, And I think that's really interesting. I don't know if you've done research on that, Chris, at all. Not formal research, but I mean, I certainly have a view on it. We we had discussions in in my department about this and, and, you know, different historians are in different places with it. I mean, certainly my view is, uh, yeah, tear them, tear them all down. Yeah, uh, I have to say, I think tear them down. And I know Chris's colleague did a podcast about someone threw one in the sea here. <laughs> and everyone lost their minds about it. But oh I completely agree with Chris. I think throw them in the sea. <laughs> Get rid of them all. Like, I mean, why do you want to glorify slavery? <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting idea that... Um, one, the idea that we learn history from statues, right? Like, no, that's the funny thing. No, I, I do not ask my students to go and stare at a statue. And, and if it wasn't there, I'm, I'm not worried that they suddenly wouldn't be able to learn the history of that particular uh, event or that individual. Um, but also, you know, the, the main reason would, would go back to what I said right at the beginning about this idea that history is... And, and always has been unfinished. Um, it, you know, it, it is not meant to be, the, the study of history is always meant to be revised and open to new interpretations. Um, and the idea that because something is around, if we remove it or change it, that is whitewashing history, is completely against the way that the discipline actually works um if if we're not allowed to challenge perspectives of the past and change our minds then there would be no historiography there would be no studying the history of history but of course we change um you know we we no longer look at the cold war and just use orthodox interpretations from the mid-1940s that this is all stalin's fault and the, the u.s didn't even want to be a global power it kind of had greatness thrust upon it and it just accepted that role um you know the korean war the the vietnam war forced people to think differently about america's role in the world and the history of how america came to be in the position it did um was was revised and changed as a result and then the collapse of the berlin wall and the end of the cold war we see 
um, new interpretations. And then when archives opened up and more evidence was available from the, the former Soviet Union and, and the satellite states, then scholars interrogated those archives. And again, we changed our perspectives and we had uh, more sophisticated and, and more informed views of what happened. That's the nature of history. So the idea that once a statue is up, that's it and that is history, um, they're not. I don't see them as historical at all. They're, they are, uh, they obviously have a role and they're kind of public, um, uh, the, you know, they're a kind of public thing, but I don't associate with them as a historian. They're not really a telling of history. And if anyone uses a, a statue as their way of learning history, then th there are much better ways to find out what happened than the plaque at the bottom of a bronze figurine. <laughs> and it's not that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing though what you were saying about what's their role it's like hmm when did these statues go up oh during Jim Crow I wonder what they were trying to say right like, yeah when exactly. you look at when the statues came up in the periods of the reconstruction in the period of the 20s during Jim Crow by the daughters of the confederacy I wonder what they were trying to say I'm sure they were really trying to just you know talk about southern heritage and then it comes when it, that's the same thing when they take them down. Oh, all of a sudden it's associated with terrorism now. We can't have these statues there. Yeah, I, I'm glad we touched on this because it is a very interesting topic. And I love to hear different people's perspectives and especially people that this is their bread and butter. Like you both look at this all the time and Chris is a scholar of history. So it's nice to get perspectives, also perspectives that are outside of the U.S. because of course, when you're in the U.S., I think we- People get passionate about the statues. Like exactly. we, we were talking we, for about three hours the other night about the statues. See, exactly. That's, that's what I mean. <laughs> but one thing we like to do with our guests on the Loopcast is- at the end of the show, if there's something that maybe we haven't touched upon that you think is really relevant or wanting to have a final say on something, we like to hand over the floor to you. So I would like to give you that opportunity, Ashton and Chris. Um, so I would like to say, I think it's really important that we work together. So my PhD is interdisciplinary. I'm not a historian. Chris is my supervisor. We work together across disciplines to try and find the best ways to figure this stuff out so I would say that I think there needs to be a really big need for disciplines working together different people working together to take a different stance on it try and challenge these extremist narratives from different ways so like Chris brings the history I bring the popular culture it gives you a different spin on things um one of the things that I'm really keen to do because I'm turning this into a paper is to actually do a another paper where I take the same dates, symbols, um, the dates and the, the names and the key battles and tell it from the perspective, perspective of radical jihad. So how is this playing out on the other side? of history so it's not just all about one extremist it's about how different groups can utilize that so I think that's really important as well because I know that there's a lot of work on the way that different ex Islamic extremist groups will utilize things like the crusade so I think that's super interesting as well 
And I think, uh, I mean, I, I would absolutely endorse everything Ashton said about interdisciplinary um, study. Um, when Ashton first got in touch with me uh, and, and kind of laid out some of the proposals and, and what she was interested in looking at, it, it really wasn't something I had looked at, but it, it was really interesting to do so. And it's been, it's been incredibly rewarding working in an interdisciplinary manner. Um, it is uncomfortable and you find you find differences in just the way that, that different disciplines write, the expectations of those disciplines. And I think for those that engage in interdisciplinary work like Ashton, it, it is very difficult. I think it creates um, hurdles and challenges that don't exist elsewhere. And of course, any doctorate is challenging. Um, so then you're, you're putting these extra challenges in place. But I would I'd fully agree. I think the only way you can truly address and counter this sort of misinformation and especially these efforts to wrap up these thoughts in legitimacy now, to, to essentially occupy the same spaces as academics and scholars, um, as, as, a, as a bunch of frauds and hacks, I think we need to work together to um, flag up to people and to highlight that. And, you know, how do we make these things popular? Well, it, it goes past just academic disciplines. You know, we need to be reaching out and working with um, popular publications, with um, those that work on documentaries and that, and that create the popular content whether that's film, whether that's video games, um, and making sure that harmful and, you know, kind of false narratives and these alt histories um, aren't sneaking in and, and being made mainstream. So um, we as scholars have to try to reach out, but also I would, I would encourage people that work in those other areas uh, to also kind of reach out to scholars and, and try to kind of work together because, um, it is popular and it is seductive and academia can at times lack those things. It can be quite dry and it can be quite detached. And sometimes we just end up having conversations with ourselves and we collectively need to do more to, to really make this public discourse, to, to raise the bar, raise the standard um, of this public discourse. Well, Ashton Kingdon and Chris Fuller, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast again and spending your evening with us. I've really appreciated this talk. It's fascinating. And I look forward to all of your future research and up and coming research on this. Thanks so much for having me, Chelsea. Yeah, thank you very much.